What I wanted to do in establishing this clear break between God's original intent for marriage being the presentation of the relationship between Christ and the church with specific emphasis upon the wounded side both of Adam and of the Lord Jesus Christ, for one for the extraction of the woman and the other for the reinsertion of the bride, uh, to show how God is in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. Comparing that to how theology around marriage, divorce and remarriage evolved along the lines of natural law when church and state were, were, uh, were conflated and the, the state had supreme authority over the church and allowed for the evolution of theology for the benefit of the state. The impetus behind the use of natural law as the theological basis for the prohibition of divorce was no more than, uh, no greater than, the actual benefit to the state of a stable citizenry, which was one of the bargains that the church made with the state to deliver a stable citizenry in exchange for the protections and privileges of state power. By the way, that's what's in revolt today, uh, even in the United States, where this privilege um, has become challenged and uh, persons of privilege are asserting that this is a cultural war in which they're losing privilege. Well, it's true, they're correct. It's a cultural war in which they're losing privilege. But it's the breakaway, it's the way God is separating the church from the state. It had grown to be one and the same over successive administrations and nobody noticed it. You know, prominent preachers routinely were the counselors of presidents. That's the story. And uh, would-be presidential personages and or important state officials would make their way to the mega churches and would be seen golfing with conspicuous, uh, conspicuously golfing with religious figures. And we were told that um, Western civilization reached its apogee in uh, the Christian faith in, in North America. Well, not at all. It's just how you view history. It's not about how you view the scriptures, it's about how you view history. And if you're a privileged lot, then of course you want history to reflect privilege and guarantee it in perpetuity. But God has a different agenda and that agenda is to restore in the earth the vision of that which He foreknew as it was when He saw it in his mind and executed creation to accommodate it. Uh, one final note on this thing about natural law. Um, natural law requires consensus. 
because at the root of natural law is observation, that is what may be observed, observation, analysis, synthesis and theory. It is the root of the scientific method. I want to show you how flawed natural law is as the basis of theology. In some societies, because of the cultural um, histories of those societies, it would be an assumed position that na nature supports the idea of one woman, a one, one man, one woman, uh, joined together to uh, produce families. But that's European society. In other societies, tribal societies for example, and I'm not saying this is right, you understand. I'm not saying this is according to that which is governed by the scriptures, no because I view, I view the scriptures as applicable to those who are under the authority of Christ, not, not just to society as a whole. That's, that's the gap that natural law attempted to bridge, that it's natural therefore it ought to apply to society as a whole. No chance. You know what the scriptures say, Paul speaking about it in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, we do not judge the unbelievers. What business do we have of judging the unbelievers? No, it's nonsense to say it's natural law and therefore it's natural to society. So let me, let's, let's walk down that path for a moment. Let me show you the foolishness of arguing natural law. In a tribal society, what is the natural law? Let's say in a tribal society where warriors go to war and some are killed and the order of tribal society is that the remaining warriors may have more than one wife so as to take care of the widow of those who died preserving the interest of the whole society. Or not even that, in certain societies where the economic reality is that there are going to be many more unmarried women struggling to find economic, their economic footing within that society and the society permits a man to have multiple wives for economic reasons and it has social implications as well. Is it natural law from Europe and America that should govern the thinking of those persons? By what but you see, it has to be made into a Christian thing and I'm saying it is not. It never was. Natural law was never supposed to be Christian, uh, the basis of, uh, of biblical thought. It wasn't. 
that, uh, you say, well, natural law is observable. All right, so let's look at nature then, because natural law. And I analogize to tribes like I analogize to herds, herds of animals. We visited Botswana, Lucy and I did some years ago. Uh, we were doing uh, some meetings there and had the opportunity to go on safari up in the Chobe. One of the most magnificent sights was to watch the animals come down to the watering places on the Chobe River at sunset. We saw herds of elephants. We were told that in that particular part of the Chobe Reserve that there, might, there must have been more than 40,000 elephants. Well, they came down to the river at sunset, to the Chobe River. It was a place near where the Chobe and the Zambezi met. One of the most magnificent sights I have ever seen. The stunning African sunset is seared in my memory for all times, for as long as I live. The animals came in herds. The elephants were led, a herd of elephants was led by one bull elephant and all the elephants in that herd were the females of that male bull elephant. So what are we to infer from nature? But it, was, it didn't stop there. It was the same for the, uh, it was the same for the giraffes. It was the same for the, for the, for the antelope. It was the same across the board in herd, in animals that moved in herds. There was one dominant male, multiple females, and a bunch of young males trying to um, trying to dethrone the, the alpha male. So what are we to infer? Well, I'll tell you what the... Now, uh, lions, with lions, um, they mated for life. But there was a pride of lions, the same as and multiple females. You know what the people of Botswana, the Swana people thought? that a man was like a bull on the savannah. We had occasion to talk with a UN researcher on the spread of AIDS in tribal uh, aspects or tribal parts of the society, and not just in tribal parts, in Botswana in general. There's a woman named Leah Rood, and she was a paid researcher from the UN to track the spread of AIDS. And she said that it was probably worse in Botswana than anywhere else she was aware of on the continent of Africa, including South Africa, where it had, it had become, uh, it, had, it threatened the very existence of the nation. And what she said was, the leading cause for this spread was because the men, the young men, she said that between the ages of about 18 and uh, 30, 
that more than 30% of the males of the people had AIDS, had AIDS HIV. And I, I took a copy of her notes, uh, her research notes looking at the, the, the models they set up and so on. And she said it's because in the culture a man is viewed, a young man in particular, is viewed like he's a bull on the savannah. His model is natural. Everything around him, the wildebeest, the as we said before, the herds of elephants, they all have a dominant male in the hierarchy, whether it's the, the life in the trees as uh, the, the various forms of um, primates or down on the ground in the savannah. That was the observable natural order. Are we to say that natural law is defined as it applies to Western theological Christian ideas? Or is natural law something completely different? When Isaac Newton observed natural law in gravity, that certainly was a constant. But to theorize that everything is subject to an observation that may be reduced to natural law and that it is, and that it is morally consistent. I mean, what morally, tell me this, what morally do the laws of gravity have to do with, with a male elephant with a herd of females. So there are things you may observe that are natural laws, but they do not necessarily speak to a moral conviction. That's the point. But in the church-state nexus, the, the, very, the erroneous use of this process to determine theology leaves you far from what the scriptures say. So I want at this point now to talk about what do the scriptures actually say about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. The first principle is marriage was designed to be a sacred thing by God. And nothing I'm about to say is intended to take anything away from that truth. Marriage is, marriage was, and marriage always will be designed by God to present the mystery of Christ and the church. And when it does, it is holy. When it does, it is sacred. But who, the question was asked, who can endure this principle? 
To whom does it apply? Hear Paul on the subject matter. Dare any of you, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous, and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Meaning they're the standard by which the world will be judged. And if the world will be judged by you, are you not worthy to judge in the smallest matters? Do you not know that you shall judge angels, how much more things pertaining to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Brother goes to law against brothers, and that before the unbelievers. Now therefore it is already an utter failure for you to go to law against one another. Why do you rather not accept wrong and be cheated? And so on. So what is he saying here? Here he is distinguishing between the, the, the one who goes to law to the unbelievers. So the unbelievers have laws and we are not to take a brother to the forum of the unbelievers for the adjudication of matters. Now, in chapter 7, he says, specifically that for the, uh, he says that we do not judge the unbelievers. Yeah, here it is, actually it's chapter 5. So he begins this whole teaching and in chapter 5, it goes through chapter 6, goes through chapter 7. I wrote to you, verse 9 of chapter 5, in my epistle, not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly do not mean with the sexually moral people of this world. He's saying, when I wrote to you not to keep company with the sexually moral, I wasn't talking about the world. You can keep company with them, all right? But not with those who claim to be believers. Why? I do not mean with the sexually moral people of this world or with the covetous, uh, and so on. Verse 12, For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? In other words, he's saying, I don't have jurisdiction to judge them. And in fact, I don't even have a need to judge them. Why? because if you do not belong to Christ, you are condemned already. Judging them is a pointless exercise. What is the condition of the unbeliever? 
He's dead while he's still alive. So he clearly distinguishes the jurisdictional authority to judge and limits it to those who claim to be of Christ, acknowledging that those who are not of Christ are condemned already, but we don't treat them as if they're subject to our judgments, we entreat them that they might be saved. So that if, if they're sexually moral people in the world, we don't say you're going to go to hell. They're already there, they're on their way there. Instead, you share the goodness of God with them as time, opportunity and the Holy Spirit's leading gives it to you. Otherwise, who are you going to interact with? If your hairdresser is a sexually moral person of the world, does that mean you have to do your own hair? If your grocer is a sexually moral person of this world, does that mean you have to plant your own food? It's silly. This idea of natural law applying across the board to humanity is what, is what falls down at this point. No, you do not have jurisdiction. The kingdom's jurisdiction is related to those who are subject to the authority of Christ. What about the unbeliever? Do they get away with? No, they are already condemned. What have they gotten away with? Nothing. They are already condemned. They're just waiting to die. Our message to them is to put on display the goodness of God, not to judge them by some farcical notion of uh, uh, laws that apply to them that were conceived in the crucible of the convenience of church-state nexuses. The unbeliever is not a member of the body of Christ. To be in Christ, you have to be reconciled to God through Christ, in Christ, by being assembled to His body. Otherwise, you're not of Him. And your condition is you are condemned already. So, judging the unbeliever is out of the question. The only ones we are now required to judge are the sexually immoral in the matter of divorce, remarriage, and, and uh, divorce, uh, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. The ones we are to judge, and the way we are to judge these things, has to do with those who claim they are believers. That's the issue. That's the issue. So with that in mind, let us go to chapter 7. Here Paul says, and I just want to introduce this and we'll proceed from that. He says, but to the rest I say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe, this is verse 12, 1 Corinthians 7, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she's willing to live with him, 
let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unholy, but they now are holy. If the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O man, O wife, that you may save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So the question then is a very narrow one and a simple one. Is the believer married to an unbeliever? Now, in the foolishness of present theology, what it means to be a believer is, according to some of the most popular preachers who have lived in the last century, all you have to do is come forward, make a confession of faith in Jesus, some would say, give me your hand, give God your heart, and join the church of your choice. And you are saved, you're going to heaven when you die. No reference is made to the kingdom of God and most importantly, submitting to the authority of Christ. As if all you ever have to do, give me a hand, give God your heart, join the church of your choice, and live pretty much the way you lived before. No change, no submission to the authority of Christ, no growing up and becoming mature. Now, it is this that is the most common condition underlying divorce and remarriage. And this is what I want to get into in deep detail about judging those who say that they are believers, because that's precisely what Paul is saying in chapter 6, where he says, do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such, he said, were some of you, but now you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified in the name of the Lord. And concerning those people, he says, what do I have to do with judging unbelievers? 
So, he's saying there are people who claim to be in the body of Christ, but continue on as if they were never, as if their lives never left the ranks of the unbelievers. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the book of 1 Corinthians is not about calling out the sins of unbelievers, it is about calling out the condition of those who say they belong to Christ, but you cannot see any evidence of a changed life, and they must be judged. They must be judged. Tragic reality is they are never judged in the church today. We have no jurisdiction to judge the unbeliever, but we have an absolute requirement to judge those who say they are believers. We'll come back and finish it, uh, finish the final piece on that subject. I'm Sam Solon, we'll talk then.